My name is Brian Newman. I'm with Renew Media. And you probably don't know our name because it was just a few months ago that we were called National Video Resources. Um, and we changed our name recently to Renew Media. And we, were an we are an organization founded by the Rockefeller Foundation to help filmmakers get their films funded and to distribute them to as wide an audience as possible. How many of you in the audience are filmmakers or producers or sometimes <laughs> filmmakers? OK, so a few. We're your best friend in a, in a sense because we have money and solutions for getting your film out there. Um, and we were not specifically set up in any way to address open content. However, it's something we've been thinking a lot about lately. Um, and I recently went down um, to the Hewlett Conference at Rice University on open educational resources. And one of the things I learned there, and that I've learned here, not from these particular speakers, is that um, this movement has a real need for learning storytelling um, and needs to learn um, how to tell its dreams and its vision and its success stories better to get more people interested in this area. And the area I'm in, in film and video, is the land of probably too many stories. Um, not just in terms of narratives and documentaries, but also a lot of false stories and a lot of false stories of success. And so I want to talk about a little bit about some realities um, in the video marketplace and then talk about three interven interventions that we've done along this area in terms of financing. Uh, one of which, at the end, is sufficiently heretical enough, I think, for this audience that it should at least get everyone's attention away from the computers for a few moments. Um, how many of you have uh, heard of the film um, Super Size Me by Morgan Spurlock? So most, uh, I think everyone almost here has heard about it. And you've probably seen it, you probably saw it on DVD, you saw that his box office was several million dollars. Um, the reality of that film, though, if you talk to Morgan, is he didn't make a dime from that film. Um, now, he now has a TV contract and a TV show, and he's make, making his next film, um, and he produced a film called What Would Jesus Do? Um, so he's gotten some success out of it, but the reality behind the story is that he didn't make a dime. He's now starting to see a trickling in of some money from the DVD sales, um, but there's, uh, what I'll get to here in a moment, a little bit more, is there's a lot of misinformation about the possibilities um, in narrative and documentary film and the success behind them, and not enough true stories and true numbers. Um, we hear a lot of them because we run a program called the Media Arts Fellowships, where we give out one million annually to filmmakers in the United States and Mexico, as well as new media artists. And so we hear a lot of their um, gripe stories about what they do not make with their productions. Um, and I think that it's uh, pretty safe to say that we know artists pretty well, because over 20 years, we've funded over 500 artists to the tune of about $12 million. And in addition, um, I know uh, David and the NEH pretty well because we do programs where we take films out. And we've done a lot of them to public libraries and museums and other nonprofits around the country where we work with NEH funding often to curate series around a certain topic like human rights. Or we just had a series called Looking at Jazz that went to several places around the country with NEH support. Um, so we also know about reaching audiences with, this, with these projects. Um, one of the things that we've learned about with artists is that, um, and, I, and again, I should point out, we are not about open content. We don't require that with our grants right now, although it's something we every now and then talk about. Um, but we've learned a lot from our artists, and one is that they want the freedom to create their vision. And on top of that, and very close second, they hope to make a living from what they're doing. However, most of them don't. And while you would think that would lead them to think about alternate strategies, um, 
you know, Morgan Spurlock, if you asked him, will you give your film away for free in an open content system of any end of the spectrum, his answer would be no. He wants to make sales of that film. And that's a reality that we have to face with a lot of content. The other, and we think that's fair enough. Artists should be able to make some kind of living from their, from their work. Um, and we also feel that there's a myth going around that nowadays you can just do anything you want. There's, the cameras are so cheap. You can distribute it so cheaply through YouTube. And while I watch user-generated content, quote unquote, we call them filmmakers, um, as much as everyone else does, the reality is that quality educational content and quality important artistic works often still take a lot of money to fund. Most of the artists that we fund are never spending less than $200,000 on their production and often they're hovering around $2 million for both documentaries and fiction films. It's still expensive. And while there are new resources to get your films out there to a public, the most successful video on Rever, which is one of the few places that pays people for their user-generated content videos, the most successful one, the Coke um, Mentos video, I think everyone's probably seen that, where they put the Mentos and the Coke and it sprays everywhere. Um, I think that's now made maybe $30,000 at its payback from Rever, and that's the most successful story they have. So we don't necessarily consider that a success ourselves. Um, some other realities out there is, and this is very obvious, it's an underfunded, overproduced field. Um, and that's probably because everyone thinks they'll be discovered and they'll become the next Morgan Spurlock, who they've heard made a lot of money, but he didn't. Um, and the other thing we've learned a lot about from our filmmakers is they don't think about distribution or the educational use of their film in particular. And if they do, they don't do it until the film's already done, they don't have the money for it, and they're at the point where they'll just take any offer that any distributor comes to with them to get their film out to a wider public. And they don't really think in advance of the possibilities of their film and alternate ways of getting it out there. And one of the reasons is there's no real numbers out there available that tell you this is how little Morgan Spurlock made on his film. You go to variety.com even, all you can get is a box office report. Well, the box office is nothing. It's a marketing campaign for the DVD sales. So that tells you nothing about the reality of what someone makes on their film. And so there's a real need out there for that. Some other realities we need to know about the the um, media artists and open content and the, and the possibilities are that while it would be great, um, you know, the idea of having everything accessible, our, our world's, world's knowledge accessible, free and open to the world, especially to educational, one of the places where filmmakers do make money is in sales to the educational marketplace, often at $300 a pop for a videotape, um, not even a DVD. And while that can seem ridiculous, it's a reality in the marketplace that we need to think of and address and thinking about open content. Most of the filmmakers we talk to are not only not open to um, alternate licensing or the possibilities of things like Creative Commons and other open content movements, they're not even aware they exist. Um, as a whole, the majority of our artists that we support and that we know um, know what they've read in Variety and they don't know much about these alternate um, options. And because no one has given them a viable model which could pay them a living for their work, they often are very resistant to the notion. And if someone can give them that possibility, that, that might work. And we started to sell some stories ourselves that help there. And I'll talk about those real quickly now. And I want to talk about two interventions uh, first that we've had. And one is that um, in talking to Peter Kaufman and others, actually, we started thinking about, and, I, and actually talking to Kara Mertes, who used to be the head of uh, POV on PBS, and she's now at the Sundance Documentary Institute. Um, we started asking the question, 
well, what would some other models be for this? Is there a way that perhaps we could think about funding media artists up front, maybe a little bit more for their work, and that can guarantee that maybe they make something on their work? And what if you even let them possibly put it out in the marketplace for a limited window of time and they could profit from that work? They could sell it to whoever the highest bidder is and hope they make money from it, whatever, but it's a stipulation of your funding it had to revert to some other alternate licensing scheme after that window of time. Perhaps after five years, it went back into the public domain or into Creative Commons license with attribution, et cetera. Um, what would those possibilities be? And, we've, and we found in telling and asking that question that we're getting artists, especially established artists who realize they've not made a dime and they're struggling and there's no longer teaching jobs to support their careers anymore. Um, they're open to those ideas. And so we don't have a lot of money to play with. Our money uh, predominantly comes from the Rockefeller Foundation, Ford Foundation, and others, and we are a regrantor. So we can't do a lot, but we just decided to do, for our 20th anniversary this year, we decided, what if instead of hiring someone and paying them money to make a commercial about us, what if we gave the money to artists? But we sampled this idea, and what we did is we put out a call to all of our artists saying, we'll give you money up front to make a less than one minute short piece and our only stipulation is that you have to make it under a Creative Commons sampling license. And we were amazed that we actually got a, a really good response from tons of our artists. We were able to finally select five, because of all the money we had to pay. And they ranged from um, emerging to established artists, very diverse. I actually had a website that I had emailed in to show everyone, but and, and um, for time's sake, I'll, I'll just skip it and say that we got some great works, which we premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival just a couple weeks ago. They're on our website, which is renewmedia.org. Uh, so very simple to find, and they usually pop up right on the first page as an advertisement. You can click on them. We made a deal with iSpot, um, which is, I don't know if everyone knows iSpot, um, E-Y-E-Spot.com. It's an online website where you can uh, mix and mash video. They have a very simple editor. You know, it's almost like an iMovie that um, you can load your content, you can mix it with other people's content, you can mix it with Creative Commons songs and spit it back out to your cell phone if you want. And we've got all those works up there and we're now encouraging the general public to take those same works, mix them, mash them up, and we have a contest where those same original five artists will decide who wins it. And we actually don't know what the prize will be yet, but we're hoping that a company will give us something to give away. Um, the second intervention, which is very simple to describe, is um, as I mentioned before, there's a lot of, of false stories, but not a lot of reality. Um, so we have contracted with uh, Peter Kaufman and Intelligent Television here um, through a MacArthur-funded study to study the economics of distribution uh, with the goal, we hope, we'll prove our theory that people aren't making money. If you look at the amount of money going into the productions and the amount of money coming back to them, there's a, a, a gross disparity and perhaps when you have the numbers in front of you, we can start to tilt the thinking of the foundation world, other funders, public media funders as well, to, and, and the filmmakers themselves to realize, wait a minute, not just Morgan, but no one is making money. There's four or five people every year that might be making some money, and maybe that can help do something different. So those are two easy interventions that we've started, and all of those will be available on our website. So I have some proposals that I, um, I've thought about for the financing of open video that we need to think about, and then I'll go into our third intervention very quickly. One is that I hear a lot of black and white in a lot of these rooms, and I think most people here are pretty reasonable, so they, they understand this, but I think it's really important to realize that the future is not open versus paid. That's not going to ever be what the future is. It's going to be a mix of those two. 
And it's not going to be top down versus bottom up. There's going to be user generated content and there's going to be stuff that's funded by HBO and whoever else. And those two worlds are going to coexist just like every other technology. We always settle into some kind of medium. The other is that the commercial non-commercial split is pretty much fiction. And we need to realize that most of the producers that are making stuff for educational use are also hoping to make it for commercial markets, et cetera. The other is, and this is very simple, but broadcast will not die. Um, there will be uh, hybrid models, but it's nowhere near dead. Um, the other is that neither is text. Um, I think it was back in 1990 that Gregory Ulmer first proposed the idea of electricity, um, the, the idea of the movement from orality to literacy to electricity, which is electronic-enabled thought processes, business models, everything around the idea of a mix of gaming, web, video, all coming together for a new electronic-enabled thought. And that was something he proposed back before someone had come up with the ridiculous term of Web 2.0 for what is what we envisioned the web back a long time ago. There's nothing new about, the, about what's going on on the web. This is stuff, I mean, we were supposed to right now be in virtual reality goggles talking to each other and zooming through cyberspace to pick out what we wanted and we're still way behind. So that's the other thing is technology is slow. And so we've got to kind of use duct tape to pull together the innovative projects that we want. Um, the other thing that we think is really important to keep in mind, and, and when you're dealing in educational settings, people don't talk about it, so we, we say students, but I, I woke up one day and realized when I was reading the paper and they keep on saying that consumers keep buying that I'm a <coughs> consumer. That's me as well as everyone else. And so I think we need to realize that the consumer is king and we need to focus on what the audience wants, not what we want them to want. And so what I'm kind of getting around to all of, with all of this is that we need pragmatic solutions and that nonprofit and education and philanthropy need to start thinking about pushing innovation with new ideas that are very much practical, pragmatic, and can offer new solutions for getting this content out there and that maybe combine different processes to get to where we want with open content at different varieties of the spectrum. So this is our last intervention, the one that hopefully will wake the room up a little bit, called the Reframe Project, which we have just now officially launched with support of the MacArthur Foundation and in partnership with Amazon.com. And our project's goal is in some ways much like the Google Book Project, but with the rights holders' permissions and with them actually having the chance to make money back for their works. And what we've done is we've realized there's a lot of films stuck on the shelf. There's a lot of film and analog formats and others that aren't accessible and because of rights clearance issues, et cetera. And there's a lot of filmmakers and distributors and archives not archives as much, but definitely distributors of content that we want to use in the educational setting that right now are not open to open content models, although they may be so in the future. The other thing we realized is that when I was down at Rice University, people kept on saying very quickly, well, you know, we have to face the, the sustainability issue and the rights issues, and then they would move on to some other topic because they didn't want to talk about those two because they didn't have an answer for any of them. So we think we've built with this project, which I'll go through, something that could potentially be a sustainable solution to get this content out there and that could move into open content solutions. So what we've done is we have partnered with Amazon, Custom Flicks, and Unbox, two of their divisions. And we are going out to archives, distributors, filmmakers with a large body of content, museums, libraries, and we are going to be offering to digitize their entire <coughs> libraries for free on video for free, on film at cost. And when I say at cost, we have worked with a lab, and this is not a uh, less than quality job. We're working with an established laboratory, 
and on average it'll cost about $400 for 90 minutes of 16 millimeter or 35 millimeter with sound. We can also do Super 8, Regular 8, all kinds of formats for that are cheaper. And it's about $400, however, we do it on a deferred basis so you can start making money back from that content sale and start paying off the cost of that digitization. And we hope to be moving to where film will be free as well. Um, the deal that we have made with Amazon is non-exclusive. And that's a key thing to keep understanding throughout this entire thing. So while we will help you digitize your works and, and make them for sale, which I'll talk about in a second, all of this is non-exclusive. So if you were, for example, to come to us and say, I want to work with a different lab and then put my stuff in your system, we'll work with you on that basis as well. If you want to, when we digitize your works, by the way, we will give you back at the beginning um, a digital uh, copy of your work as a DVD master. And if that's not good enough quality for you, we can offer almost any item you want, um, a hard drive, you know, what you need for iTunes, and we'll give it to you on a non-exclusive basis. And you can take that content and make it available for free on an open content system. Or you could make it available for sale through iTunes. We don't care. We're definitely going on the long tail model of realizing if it's in our system, we don't care where else it exists. Um, one of the things that we are, and we're going to help people deliver it through three methods. Um, DVD on demand. And we think this is a crucial part of the project that makes it different than what other people are doing. You, every single day, I think today, two more places launch that are offering digital downloads. And the reality is that's, that's great, but no one's using it. Um, it's a very small marketplace. People still want something they can get onto their TV, and people still want DVD at this time. So we're offering DVD on demand. No inventory is needed, so you don't have to print a thousand copy run or something like that. Uh, we're also offering digital download to own or to rent at prices set by the rights holder and at favorable splits to the rights holder and at um, variable times of rental. So for example, a university could choose to download a digital copy to their server and show it in their classroom and have it expire after they've shown it once or after an entire semester, or they could give logins for their students, which could last for an entire semester or for an entire year, or you could purchase the copy in perpetuity. Um, we can set all of those based on what the rights holder wants to do and what the universities want to do. And um, again, all of these options are opt-in. So if you want to do DVD on demand but not digital download, uh, you can opt to do that. All of them are opt-in uh, processes. And the last thing where it says ingest on demand here um, is not the best solution, but if you've got a large body of film content and you don't have the money for the digitization and we haven't been able to help you raise a grant for it, uh, we can do a project called ingest on demand where we put all of your metadata into the system. And working with Amazon, they have some algorithm that I don't even understand that says after four people or whatever look at it, they're confident it's going to sell enough that they'll go ahead and ingest it and digitize it and cover all the costs. So we can do things like that as well. Um, we are also simultaneously, because getting it up on Amazon, big deal, who's going to find it, we're building a separate website, the Reframe website, that is an educational marketplace focused website. Um, and if you imagine all of the social networking that's out there on Facebook and everything else, it'll be part of our website, but geared towards professors, scholars, and other educators who want to find content and get it out to their students and others. They can recommend things to each other. If you're a professor of film studies in Oklahoma, you could look at what David Boardwell was teaching in his class at University of Madison, Wisconsin. Order the same thing for your students. Put it on your syllabus. They could find the work, download it themselves, recommend it to their mom, whatever they want to do. Um, it's branded by the catalog holder, so whether it's a filmmaker or a distributor or an archive. 
um, and it's very participatory, and we're using Amazon's recommender systems. There's a lot in this project, but I'm um, go quickly, and you guys can ask questions later. Here's a little schematic made by someone who um, thinks right to left instead of left to right, so uh, you have to look at it somewhat in reverse. Um, but the idea is that the reframe project, um, any content holder can put their analog content or digital to, into us. We return a digital copy to them on a non-exclusive basis. They can take it out into any other marketplace they want to. We can help them make it available for DVD on demand, digital download or rental. It's a non-exclusive multiple marketplace option as well where we will go out and on behalf of thousands of hours of content, we're hoping to have 10,000 titles in this system within one year's time. And we're confident we can do that based on conversations we've already had with some content holders. Because of that, we'll be able to um, negotiate better splits for them with places like iTunes, et cetera. And then the last thing is, and this is what becomes important to this meeting is, because it's not exclusive, if people want to make their content available on a free basis on any kind of range of open content, if they want to make it available for free in certain settings and fee in others, we can help them do that through our website. And then the last thing is, because this is not something that's easy to do, um, from the beginning, we realized we have to address all of the different problems here. So we are doing a series of convenings around particular solutions to certain problems, such as public media, such as archival issues. When, you, when your film can't even be digitized because it's not in a shape to be done so, how do we address that? Our hope is to be doing joint large grants to, br to bring out to archives where we can say this is an important body of work that needs to be preserved and kept in an analog format, yet we can put it in the system and make it sustainable. And um, last, we will also be doing a lot of work around rights issues, which will be a huge stumbling block for a lot of this work. Um, and most of it will become bigger than what we can solve, but we're hoping it can be a nexus uh, where people can gather to think about these issues and try to address them, and the people who are better at it than us, like public knowledge, et cetera, can, can address those issues. And those are, uh, and the last thing is, Again, we think that this could be a sustainable way to work towards open content because we've built what we've termed and coined a with-profit solution, not non-profit, not for-profit, but the combination of the two that could allow for both open and paid content and potentially become a sustainable place to have both. And thank you. <laughs>